Welcome to Talk is Sheep, the official podcast of the Wild Sheep Society of British Columbia. Brought to you by our title sponsor, Mountain Tough Fitness Lab. Come along with us as we take conversations that matter to you into the high alpine. We have partnered with Mountain Tough Fitness Lab to help get you in shape and mentally stronger. Whether you're a veteran hunter or just starting out, the Mountain Tough app will take you to the next level. We personally train using the Mountain Tough programs and we believe in it so much that we want to give you six weeks for free using code SHEEPBC. That's S-H-E-E-P-B-C. Check out Mountain Tough Fitness Lab. You won't be disappointed. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Talk is Sheep. This is Kyle Stelter. I'm your host, and uh, it is Sheep Week. I'm sitting in Reno right now, and people are flying in. I'm running into people all day, every day in the hotel, and uh, it's getting real. Uh, the Wild Sheep BC crew is on their way down here over the next few days, and uh, we're going to be on the show floor, booth 561. Please stop by and say hello. We're doing a bunch of podcasts. I'll get into that in a minute. But uh, this past week, I had the opportunity to travel down to Dallas for Dallas Safari Club's convention, and uh, what a great event. Um, Just amazing opportunity to get together with fellow conservationists, talk about hunting, talk about conservation, talk about the outdoors, talk about wildlife. On the Thursday evening, I attended uh, the evening banquet, and the keynote speaker that evening was Catherine Semser. And Catherine began to speak, and immediately I turned to my wife and I said, we need to get her on the podcast. So I managed to connect with Catherine that evening and had a quick chat with her and she was more than happy to sit down with me during the show. And uh, she does a bunch of uh, work alongside uh, supporting DSC, really involved with the great work they're doing there. And so she carved out time in her schedule, which I was really grateful for because we all know what it's like when your own show is happening. It's just, it's utterly chaos just trying to keep up with all the commitments. Catherine is incredibly articulate. She's very intimate with hunting and Africa. And, um, you know, you're probably not going to win an argument when speaking against hunting in Africa with her. Uh, She's incredibly knowledgeable. Uh, She's currently doing her PhD in biology, and she's um, focusing on game rangers. And I'm not going to do it justice here by explaining it, so I'm going to let Catherine talk about her own words. But... We kind of kept this one pretty high level. We talked a little bit about her PhD studies and what she's hoping to achieve and what she's looking at. But we also just looked pretty holistically about hunting in Africa. And, you know, there's a lot of facts and narratives that were shared in our hunting community. And and quite often they're, um, I guess, challenged by the anti-hunting community. And uh, so, you know, outright I was asking Catherine about these quite um, sensitive issues and, and she was incredibly articulate. Um, and I really enjoyed uh, this conversation with with her, and I'm sure you're going to as well. Um, so before we get the podcast, I just want to say that we're in Reno for Sheep Week, and uh, if you happen to be in town, come by the booth. We're in booth 561. There's a lot going on this week. Um, we are going to be doing a number of podcasts at the booth itself. Uh, we've got an incredible lineup of guests. We're going to start off on Thursday with David Martinez. He's been on the podcast before, but we're going to have him at the booth. So come by the booth. And uh, so he's going to be up on Thursday. And then later that afternoon, Jen Phillips is going to be there. Anyone that follows Jen on uh, Instagram, she's got this incredible donation she's done for Sheep Week. Uh, She's welded up a uh, sheep and then it's... uh, 
on a packboard and it's all welded it's phenomenal it's one of the most beautiful pieces of artwork i've seen and uh, you're going to love it so that's going to go up i think it's currently on the auction it's uh, at over 20 grand already but it's going to go high because it is just absolutely stunning anyone would want to own that thing uh, on friday rachel attila and adam foss are going to be by the uh, booth and, and do a podcast there and uh, we're incredibly grateful for this. They're going to talk about um, the, the Sitka film they've done recently that was just recently released. And, uh, you know, just great talk about Sitka Gear. They're the official sponsor of the Wild Sheep Society BC. Talk about their ambassadorships, uh, how they support Sitka, and a whole bunch of really cool stuff. So come by and say hi to uh, Rachel and Adam. And uh, then on Saturday, our podcast sponsor, our title sponsor is Mountain Tough. And um, we're going to have Dustin on from Mountain Tough. He's going to be talking a little bit about fitness, talk about the show, talk about the brand. Uh, they've got a bunch of really cool promotions. Uh, I think it's on Saturday morning. They're doing a really cool workout. So if you go to Talk a Sheep, our channel, you can get info on that. And uh, Colin was giving me a hard time, Colin Peters, and he's like, okay, let's go down and rep. Our CEO has to be there. And I would have loved to come and done the workout. Uh, absolutely love Mountain Tough. I use it personally. And I uh, would have loved to attend, but unfortunately, I got a conflict that morning. I've got another meeting. Um, I have to help with the life member breakfast. So Colin and Rebecca Peters are going to be there repping Wild Sheep BC. And then on Saturday afternoon, Frontiersman Gear is going to come by the booth. Um, so um, Mountain Tough, Dustin will be there at 1. And then at uh, 2.30, Frontiersman Gear is going to come by. Um, we're going to have Tanner and Jeff in the house and probably do a podcast with them as well. We've got a giveaway. Uh, we're doing tons of giveaways. So we've got a bunch of promos. So we've got Wild Sheep Society BC branded uh, Yeti Ramblers. We've got the Yonder 1 liter water bottle. And we also have uh, leather patch hats. And if you pair that with a membership, it's 70 bucks US, um, which is below our cost. And you're going to get an opportunity to uh, also uh, win a cooler. We're going to do a cooler giveaway. So everyone that buys a membership or one item at least will get one entry into the Sheep Week promo. promo and the winner is going to walk away with a um, Yeti Hopper Flip 12. So um, the more you buy, the more you get. You buy one membership and... Uh, one of those items I just mentioned, you get two entries, you just buy the membership, you get uh, one entry, you buy any item on the store, you get one entry. And if you buy a life membership, you get five entries and, and the list goes up from there. And then on Saturday, we're going to draw that for the Yeti Hopper Flip. It's a $300 value, give or take. And uh, Frontiersman Gears kicked in a bunch of leatherworks. Um, there's uh, some really cool items that Tanner's come up with. He'll bring them by the booth. Um, there's a sling and um, I think it's a leather license carrier. So really cool pro promos that we're doing there. Uh, but come by and say hi, Booth 561. We've got two of our films that are going to be shown. Uh, we, were, we had the opportunity to work with the Wild Sheep Foundation, Women Hunt, and Women Shaping Conservation put together a film called Beyond Bonds. And our very own Rebecca Peters is in it with... Uh, Renee Thornton, and uh, it's just a fantastic film. You're going to love it, and it's uh, going to be debuting at 12.30 on Saturday in the Full Curl Cinema, and then uh, we're going to roll into Transmission at 3 p.m. on Saturday, and that's the Wild Sheep Society BC film that was uh, produced a few years back. So 
Lots going on at Sheep Week. We'd love to see you. Come by the booth. Say hi. I'm going to be there a ton. Uh, hey, on Friday night, I'm going to be the MC on Legacy Night for the banquet. So if you're at the banquet, come by, say hello. Um, I'll give you a shout out from the stage and we'd love to see you there. So just a fantastic week for wild sheep, wild sheep conservation. But without further ado, I just want to welcome Catherine Semser to the uh, podcast and ladies and gentlemen, you're going to enjoy this. Oh, we're going to have her back. We just scratched the surface. She's so knowledgeable, so articulate, and um, and so um, her resume is um, so full. Uh, she's done so much in her time, and she continues to do so much. So enjoy this chat with Catherine Semser. This episode is sponsored by our conservation partner, Gunworks. Thank you, Sitka Gear and Gunworks, for investing in healthy wildlife and sustainable ecosystems. Well, good afternoon, Catherine. It's uh, great to connect with you, and uh, welcome to our Talk of Sheep podcast. Thank you, Kyle. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, awesome. So we're at the Dell Safari Clubs, uh, and just actually, is it DSC now, or is it Dell Safari Club? It's both. Okay, it's so both. either one's acceptable. So we're at their convention here in Dallas, and uh, I had the opportunity, I was at the banquet on Thursday night, and uh, there was a fantastic video, and you got up and spoke, and I'm like, oh my goodness, we need to connect. And I'm obviously familiar with the great work you, you've done in the past and continue to do, but uh, seeing you in the first hand, I was like, I tap my wife on the shoulder. I'm like, okay, we got to track Catherine down. If I do nothing this weekend, we have to <laughs> chat with Catherine. So anyway, it's great to connect. So I guess for our listeners, Catherine, let's start off a little bit with your background and sort of, you know, your, your resume is long and distinguished and I, I would butcher it. So I'm going to let you sort of talk to that. Yeah, sure. So I, I started my career in the, the New York City office of McKinsey and Company, which is a large consulting firm. And I was one of the first people who was part of what's now their sustainability practice. And we were really advising Fortune 500 companies on how to make their their work more environmentally friendly. And that's back in the 1990s. So that's mm -hmm. kind of going back into ancient history. And after spending a few years there, I moved to Washington, D.C., where I worked for a large, uh, well-known NGO. And um, shortly after I arrived, the terrorist attacks of September 11th, 2001 happened. And I was immediately pivoted into being their primary liaison with the U.S. Department of Defense, who, knowing that they were going to be going to war, were dealing with a lot of conservation and environmental challenges on their training ranges that they needed to resolve in order to have the kinds of training opportunities that would increase the survivability uh, of our war fighters. And to this day, that's some of the most rewarding work you know, that, I, that I've ever done. After spending about 13 years doing that, um, I went into private practice and worked with a group of veterans who were doing train-advise-assist missions um, with African anti-poaching units. Uh, after a few years of, of doing the consulting work, I moved into the think tank world where I worked for the Property and Environment Research Center, which is an organization based in Bozeman, Montana, that looks at how markets might be able to solve some of the environmental challenges that we face. So almost going full circle back to the McKinsey days, you know, with, with, with that. And, and recently I decided to, to pursue my, um, my academic career a, a little bit more fully. And, and I'm enrolled in a PhD program at the University of Oxford, uh, pursuing my PhD in biology. I'm also serving as an advisor to the Game Rangers Association of Africa, in addition to doing some work with, with Dallas Safari Club. Wow, there's a lot to unpack there. So the one thing that jumps off the page at me immediately is that 
um, you didn't really start out off in the conservation world, but you kind of uh, ended up there. So was that a natural progression from you? Obviously, you know, the path you laid out made sense, but was there an interest in conservation? Did you grow up interested in, in the outdoors and, and the conservation ethos, or where did that come from? I, I definitely did grow up interested in the outdoors, did a lot of hiking growing up. You know, our family would go fishing up in New Hampshire, you know, in the summertime. Um, I didn't start hunting until I was about 30 years old and, and taught myself how to hunt. And that was really out of concern for where my food w was coming from. And I've been an avid hunter ever, ever since. Um, but, you know, my, my interest in conservation, you know, it doesn't just come from my love of the outdoors. You know, I see conservation as being bigger than that. We all depend on the natural world. You know, whether you're a Fortune 500 company or a farmer, you depend on a healthy environment for your livelihood. And, and I think that's something people are realizing more and more, that we're connected to this planet, we're of this planet, and we have to keep it healthy or else we're going to run into a range of challenges that, you know, go way beyond species declines and include things like water degradation, migrations, um, I'm talking about migrations of people, uh, and even, you know, security challenges, um, you know, wars can break out when natural resources become scarce. So conservation has to be something that we as a society and our political decision makers in particular need to take much more seriously than they currently do. Mm. So there's a lot to unpack there too. And there's a few things that you talked about that I found very interesting. You talk about economics, you talk about sustainability. Um, you know, there's the money behind this and there's the conservation side of things, but there's, you know, those outside the natural world that, you know, benefit uh, businesses, industry and all that sort of stuff. So um, having a significant impact on it. Um, you know, when you look at this um, from your perspective, and now you're you're going to do your, uh, I, I guess it's your PhD in philosophy, biology, is that? Uh, not philosophy, just biology. Okay, okay, yeah, terminology is off there, thanks. Um, so, you know, what's kind of leading your interest, and, and, you know, are you just kind of following the work, or, and, you know, because you've, you've made these different changes, and, and there's so many things that you've come across through your time, so now you're taking it to the next level with your your doctorate here. So mm -hmm. kind of what's driving that? Is it an interest? Is it just like a need for uh, what's uh, what lacking in our space or, or how does that evolve for you? Yeah, that's a really good question. So something I'm really interested now, interested in now is the intersection of conservation and security. Mm. And, and that's led me to work with the game rangers and, and my my PhD, even though it's in biology, is not a traditional uh, biology degree. It's almost more of a human dimension study. Mm. And what I'm looking at is various unresolved questions around game rangers in Africa. You know, these are the people who are on the front lines protecting the hunting concessions, protecting the national parks, um, deterring the poaching that you know, has, has plagued some of these areas in, in recent decades, although you know, recent research shows that you know, that's being reversed to some extent, which is a good thing. But the game rangers you know, have become increasingly militarized in many areas, and in some places that's obviously justified. You know, a place like Virunga National Park, where the rangers are facing an armed insurgency. What I've seen in my tra travels is that sometimes you have ranger units that look as, I like to say, tactical, mm -hmm. um, but it's a little bit of an overkill, you know, because the threat matrix they're facing um, just doesn't justify that level of, of armament. And so what I'm wondering is how does that impact 
conservation. You know, how do local people feel when they see this heavily armed ranger force, you know, rolling through their, their village? Do they see it as something that gives them security? Or is it something that's a little bit off-putting and it feels like conservation's being done to them as opposed to done with them? Mm. And so my, my, my you know, thesis will explore a lot of those types of questions. In addition to, you know, how does the law intersect with ranger forces, um, particularly in, in conflict zones? Because, you know, they're not soldiers. They're not mercenaries. Sometimes they're not even recognized as law enforcement and yet they are armed actors in these conflicts. And how do things like the Geneva Convention apply to ranger forces in those types of circumstances? And, and that's important to understand for you know, imp making sure we have systems of accountability in place for when things go sideways. So the ranger forces, just uh, from an understanding perspective, are they quite often private? Are they state-run? Uh, Who, who's driving uh, that aspect of it? That's a really good question, and it's, it's a complicated landscape. Mm -hmm. So you'll have state-based ranger forces, but sometimes those ranger forces might be backed up by a conservation NGO mm -hmm. who's providing everything from training to salaries. Um, but what's more prevalent on the landscape is the private forces, you know, the ones that we see in the hunting concessions, the ones that we see in the photo tourism areas. And then, of course, you've got NGOs like African Parks, which take over the management of public national parks in African countries um, to try to turn them around if they're struggling. But they've got their own ranger units that are then patrolling those public lands. Mm, okay. So let's just move up one level higher and look at it holistically as opposed to just the rangers specifically. So when we talk about um, hunting and conservation in Africa, um, you know, is I've never had the privilege to travel to Africa, and I, I assume you've spent a lot of time on the ground over there, is that correct? Fair bit, yeah, so more in, than most. Cool. So in, in your experience, do you find that there's, you know, we're always told in North America, you know, and I, I share this narrative all the time that, there's generally widespread support from the communities that, you know, uh, if wildlife has uh, value, it brings value to their community, it feeds their families, it helps protect uh, their, the citizens in, the, in their communities. So is that generally the consensus is that hunting is accepted and it's, uh, it's seen as a positive for not the outfitting industry, but specifically for the inhabitants in the community, some that may work there, but maybe some that aren't? So based on the evidence that I've seen in the literature, it can really vary. And a lot really depends on how the operator is engaging with, with the community. Um, more often than not, they do see it as a positive. And in fact, I was just in Zimbabwe on behalf of Dallas Safari Club back in September. Um, and one of the things we did was shadow an elephant hunt from the time that the elephant went down to the time that the meat was distributed to the community. And from the 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 butchering of the animal to the meat going into the, the baskets brought by the women, there was, it was a moving experience for me because I've never seen something like that even with all my travels. And I've never, I've never felt a place where the air was alive with joy. Mm -hmm. and, and, and that's what I was feeling in that village because we take, you know, getting a piece of meat for granted. Mm -hmm. You know, if, if we can't hunt it, we can go to the grocery store. It's relatively affordable. You know, whether it's hot dogs or ribeye, you know, you can find some type of protein. For people living in these rural remote areas of Africa, they don't have that luxury. 
And I, I don't think a lot of people here in the global north understand that. Um, moreover, you know, hunting is dangerous mm -hmm. in a place like Africa. You can be charged by an elephant. You can be charged by a Cape buffalo. There's black mambas. So, you know, to the people who say, like, well, why don't the people just hunt it themselves? You know, part of what the hunting industry is, is doing is, is not just supplying these people with a reliable food source. They're removing some of the risk in acquiring that food. Mm -hmm. um, they're also freeing people up to, to do other things. You know, hours that you don't have to spend hunting are hours that you can spend fixing your home, maybe, you know, taking your children to school, tilling your fields. Um, for us, hunting is, is a lifestyle. It's a hobby. It's something that we choose to do. For people living in that part of the world, if, if the hunting industry wasn't there, hunting would be a chore. Mm -hmm. You know, it would be something that they had to do for survival. It wouldn't be the same motivation that people like you and I have mm -hmm. when we go out into the field. And so that's something I, I really hope more and more people in the global north appreciate that, um, you know, there are differences there. And, and life is a lot harder in places like the lower Zambezi Valley of Zimbabwe than it is here in Dallas. Mm -hmm. When we talk about the monetization aspect of it, so we look at, and you know, somebody books an elephant hunt here at, at the convention or one of the other conventions and they pay 140000 Obviously, there's going to be a booking fee. Somebody's going to get a booking fee somewhere along the way, and that probably stays in North America in some cases, maybe not always. And then it goes, you know, that money trail is going to obviously lead to where that resource is. Uh, is there, does the money benefit the communities as much as we think it does? That's kind of the narrative. It's like, well, if, you know, that money finds its way to the outfitter and then they employ guides and they employ trackers and, and quite often they'll, you know, obviously provide meat, but also, you know, invest in schools and a whole bunch of other resources. Is that pretty w as widespread as we like to believe it is, or is it sort of a mixed bag depending on where you're at? Well, it's certainly much more widespread than the opponents of hunting would right. paint the picture. You know, what we hear all the time from, from the opposition is that, you know, photo tourism contributes X percent more to GDP than, than hunting does. And that's really the wrong scale to, to look at things. GDP is not as relevant when it comes to conserving wildlife as is household incomes. Mm. And if we look at household incomes, hunting has a tremendous, you know, impact uh, on, on improving them. And I'll tell you a story in a second. But, you know, the reason GDP is not a good reflection um, of, of impact on wildlife conservation is that the nation is not living with dangerous animals like lions, elephant, Cape buffalo. Um, the nation is not having their fields destroyed by these animals. The people who live alongside them are the ones who are facing those risks and those threats. And so improving the lives of the people who we are asking to live alongside dangerous game is absolutely essential. And, and we do know that those lives are improving. When I was in Zimbabwe, I had the, the great opportunity to visit with this one family um, of a tracker for one of the safari companies. And what he's been doing, because these, these people who work for the safari companies are away from home for long periods of time, so he sends his money back to his wife, and she manages the money. Well, they've now bought a truck, which is being used to bring construction supplies into the lower Zambezi Valley. Well, that truck has a driver who this tracker employs. 
and that driver employs other people to help load the truck, so on and so forth. They've also now bought a second truck, you know, so that business is growing. The wife has started a hair salon, all with this tracker salary coming from the safari company. And that's an example of a household income that's been uplifted, you know, because of the presence of, of safari hunting. Um, you know, you, you, you don't hear about that, you know, in a lot of the conversation, but those are the important stories to be, to be looking at because that same family has to live alongside elephants and lions and leopards and things that can harm them and, and, and kill them. Mm-hmm. Um, Let's talk a little bit about um, the value of wildlife. So, you know, we look at an, an elephant that maybe has a, a value of $140,000 as a guided hunt. Um, and quite often we hear these cases where uh, hunting's been terminated and then and effectively that wildlife is worthless. So there's no uh, commercial value to that. Uh, is that, again, as widespread as, as we um, are told it is? And, and do we see a lot of cases where we've seen significant wildlife uh, depopulations in certain areas because of uh, policies around that, non-hunting policies? Oh, for sure. And I think the most obvious example, which has you know been discussed before, but it's important to discuss it again, is, is Kenya. Right. You know, Kenya banned hunting in 1977. And, you know, that's been held up by opponents of hunting as the outcome that is most desirable. And unfortunately for Kenya and, and its wildlife, it, it hasn't worked. You know, there's a lot of peer-reviewed research that's come out in recent years showing that outside of the strictly protected areas, the national parks, wildlife populations have declined by as much as 60%. Mm-hmm. And these are species that are relatively common in countries that allow hunting. Um, you know, to, to kind of dovetail off of this, there was just a study published in Science, um, uh, one, one of the science journal publications. Um, there's a journal called Science. Um, uh, two weeks ago, I think. And what it showed was that elephant populations from Tanzania South were starting to stabilize after a prolonged poaching crisis you know, in the region. Well, why are they starting to stabilize? They're stabilizing because they have the habitat. that can allow them to get their feet back under them. Well, where's that habitat coming from? Now, of course, some of it's coming from national parks, but a lot of it is the hunting areas. Mm. The hunting areas are providing the space that these giants need to get their feet back under them and recover, you know, after years of of slaughter, you know, from, from poachers. And that's what Kenya's lost. You know, they only have those national parks, and it's why their wildlife is declining, because outside of the national parks, the wildlife habitat is being converted to agriculture, um, primarily crop agriculture, which is just not a great place if you're an elephant or a lion or a leopard. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, let's talk a little bit about that. So um, Sue Tidwell, who happens to be here, she's written a little bit about Africa. Um, just kind of from a layman's perspective, um, not from a scientific perspective. And she talks a lot about industry in, in her writings and stuff like that. You know, you talked about agriculture and the impact it's had there. Um, I, I'm understanding that uh, there's a Chinese railroad being put down mm-hmm. in, through the south of Africa. That's, that's a whole other issue, yeah. Yeah, so how much is that, um, what kind of, and I know this is string off your field of expertise, mm-hmm. but if, you, if we could touch a little bit on, you know, the impacts of, uh, I guess, 
urbanization and uh, expanding um, populations and, and then industry and the effect that you're seeing on that in Africa? Yeah, well, I personally haven't seen, um, seen it, but it is occurring. You know, it's, it's very clear from the work that others have done that is occurring. And what those of us who care about Africa and, and its wildlife and its people um, need to really work within is the reality that Africa is growing and it is developing. And it's no longer the Africa of Ernest Hemingway or, you know, Robert Ruark or some of the people that a lot of hunters look up to. Um, you mentioned the Chinese railroad. You know, that's going to fragment habitat, mm-hmm. and, and that's going to have an impact. A lot of the energy development that's coming in, which I think is good and necessary. People should have electric light. I don't want to deny anyone that. Um, it's going to take away wildlife habitat. And how are we going to manage and conserve wildlife on the African continent within this new reality, which is already here? You know, it's not coming. It's not on the 10-year horizon. It's, it's already happening, you know, these, these big development projects. And we can't just lock everything up. Mm-hmm. So we really need to start having a conversation about how development and wildlife can coexist in the new Africa. And to take away the hunting areas, you know, through trophy bans and, and other policy means, to me just seems very short-sighted. Um, because, you know, that might be the best chance to conserve what habitat is going to remain. But if it gets converted to crop agriculture in the next, you know, year or two because an outfitter went out of business, we're not going to have that option available. Mm -hmm. So when we talk about habitat loss and we talk about, let's say, conservation specifically, we know that organizations such as DSC and a number of other great organizations throughout North America invest heavily in Africa. What does that model look like from a North American perspective, from an African perspective? Um, you know, there's the outfitter themselves and um, obviously they're pro, you know, a lot of this land is private land, so they're yeah. investing in that. Um, but is there government or is there not-for-profit work that's being done outside of or within Africa that's supporting the, you know, the habitats and, and protecting animals? Well, you know, it's really hard to say because, like, there is definitely a North American model right. of wildlife conservation, which Shane Mahoney, you know, and others so beautifully articulated. There really isn't an African model of wildlife conservation. Mm-hmm. There's a Namibian model of wildlife conservation, a South African model, a Zimbabwean model, a Kenyan model, um, but there's not a unified, you know, model of wildlife conservation. You know, if you go to South Africa, um, privatization, you know, is is part of the landscape. You know, you can own a rhino, you can own a lion, you can own a giraffe, an elephant, etc. If you're a landowner, um, and and to a great extent, that's been a conservation success. Mm-hmm. You know, southern white rhino recovered in South Africa for one reason and one reason only: people could buy them and they could sell the right to hunt them. And you know, we saw over several decades, you know, the population increase several hundred percent, you know, as a result of that. Um, same with, with, you know, you know, ungulates. Um, there was just a study published two or three years ago, I think now, showing that South Africa has a globally significant population because private landowners, you know, are able to own these animals and have a financial incentive to, to conserve them because of both the hunting and the phototourism trade. 
Now, what was the outgrowth of that? You know, where did that all come, come, come out of? Um, South Africa was facing a horrible drought decades ago, and cattle ranches were going out of business, and landowners needed another means to sustain their land, you know, something that they could sell. And so the government of South Africa allowed for the private ownership of wildlife, and it's been successful. You go to a place like Zimbabwe, you know, just, just over the border, it's a very different model. The government owns wildlife, by and large, in, in that country. Um, and the land is either government land or communal land. And if you're a hunting operator, and I'm simplifying things a little bit, mm -hmm. but you know, this is the general gist of it. If you're a hunting operator and you get the, the rights to hunt an area, be it government or, or communal, the Zimbabwean Parks and Wildlife Management Authority then issues you a quota for mm -hmm. each species. So you can harvest so many you know, elephants, you can harvest so many leopard, um, you know, and you have to operate you know, w within that quota. And, you know, so there's a lot of variation, you know, across Africa. Some things are much more similar to the North American model and places like South Africa, you know, obviously have some, some divergence from the North American model. And um, I think that's a good thing because, you know, each of these places is a laboratory mm -hmm. where we can see what works and what doesn't and under what conditions does something work or doesn't it work. Uh, because there is no one-size-fits-all mm -hmm. approach to wildlife conservation. You really have to take it on a site-by-site -site basis. Who's leading the charge in that? Who's uh, sort of the gold standard for conservation? Just uh, numerically, like, the, you know, the proofs in the pudding, there's more wildlife in the landscape than anywhere else. Who's kind of the leader out there from what you believe? Yeah, well, I mean, that's a hard question to answer. I mean, again, South Africa has done some wonderful things, mm -hmm. I think, for wildlife. Um you know, at the operator level, at the risk of, of plugging someone, because he, he is a friend, you know, in Mozambique, there's a gentleman named Mark Haldane. He runs a company called Zambezi Delta Safaris. And, you know, Mark took over a place called Katata 11 back in 1994. And it's a massive area. Um, you know, just, just absolutely, you know, extensive wilderness. You have to fly in to get there. But Mozambique, you know, had decades of civil war that it went through. And during that period, most of the game was completely shot out. And when Mark took over Katata 11 in 1994, that was the condition he found it in. And over the ensuing decades, um, he's been able to bring the wildlife back mm. through habitat management, through anti-poaching, um, but also by purchasing animals in South Africa and bringing them to his concession to repopulate, uh, repopulate them. He did a phenomenal, well-known project with the Cabela Family Foundation and Ivan Carter, where they purchased 24 lions in South Africa and brought them back to, to his concession. And those lions will never be hunted. Yeah. And the reason he had to bring the lions in was because the Plains game populations had gotten to such a point, they became overabundant. And there's not enough hunters to keep them in check. So he needed a large carnivore on the landscape. So there's systemic successes and there's also individual successes. Hmm. Very cool. Okay, Catherine, let's just touch a little bit about um, the conservation. So we talked a little bit about on the ground conservation in Africa mm -hmm. and some of the successful models. Let's talk about some of the policy. So, you know, 
people say, I've heard people, especially non-hunters say, well, let Africa manage their wildlife, stay out of it. And why are we making these decisions? So there have been decisions made over the years that ban on ivory imports, for example, to the UK and recently Canada and other countries trying to ban that. Um, you know, should we be meddling in Africa's business? And is it important that, you know, that policies are made outside the country that are going to affect Africa's wildlife? Yeah, good question. I mean, there's a certain degree of hypocrisy, mm -hmm. you know, here in the United States in how we approach hunting in Africa. And, and I say that because our entire conservation system is based on hunting. You know, if all of the state wildlife agencies who are the, the backbone of American conservation depend on hunters' dollars. And we all know this. We all understand this. I don't see uh, as concerted an effort to change that here as there is to change it in Africa. And so why is it okay for us to have this system, but it's not okay for African nations to have the exact same system that they learned from us? You know, the a lot of the community-based natural resource management programs that we see in Africa, and these are the programs that ensure that cash gets back to the communities, you know, from, from hunters, they were set up by USAID you know, the, the primary U.S. development organization. Um, we taught them how to do this, and now we're telling them that it's not okay. And, but it's a, it remains okay for us. And to me, that just makes no sense and seems very, very hypocritical. You know, should we be, you know, meddling in Africa's business? You know, that's a more complicated question. Mm. You know, with things like the ivory trade, you know, there is no question that the ivory trade is linked to transnational organized crime, the black market ivory trade. You know, and that is an American issue and a European issue as much as it is an African issue. But is things like banning, you know, the, the sale of pianos that have ivory keys, is that really the best way to address that problem? Or would we be better off working with our African partners to tackle the organized crime element? Um, that is the real problem, because the problem's not ivory. Mm -hmm. The problem is the criminal. Mm -hmm. And there seems to be a reluctance to, to, to go after that real problem. Not that it's not happening. I mean, there's very brave men and women in law enforcement you know, who are, who are taking this on. But that's not the that's not the sexy news story, right? Like the, the, the sexy news story is we're going to ban ivory, we're going to burn ivory. Um, I, I just don't know, you know, what we're achieving by doing that because we're not going after the real problem, which is the criminal element in the trade. Um, you know, similarly, you know, some people will say, well, you know, demand reduction campaigns are successful. But, you know, I saw some data suggesting um, let me take a step back. You know, a lot of this ivory goes to the Far East, you know, China in particular. And yes, to some extent, demand reduction campaigns have, have been successful for people who can't afford to buy ivory, mm -hmm. right? But the data shows that for, you know, Chinese who are able to travel abroad and who can buy ivory, they're still buying ivory. Mm -hmm. So, you know, again, are we really addressing the problems you know, or are we just pretending that we have a solution in order to raise funds? Right. Just out of curiosity, is it 
exclusively decorative that they're using the ivory for? Is there any other, like you talked about piano keys, is there anything else that it's being used for? I'm just not really familiar with what. Yeah. Well, t today it's primarily decorative, right. decorative arts. But I mean, historically, ivory was used for a whole range mm -hmm. uh, of things. You know, piano keys, the bows that people play violins with, pool balls, mm -hmm. um, you know, billiard balls. Um, and under some of these laws, you know, it's it's now illegal or very difficult to you know to sell those antiques, right? right. And stopping that doesn't stop elephants from being slaughtered, you know, in, in Africa. Um, you know, if you want to stop elephants from being slaughtered in Africa, one, go after the criminal element, and two, support game rangers. And, you know, who supports game rangers? The hunting industry. Right. So let's talk a little bit about that aspect, um, the game rangers themselves, and obviously that's your field of expertise, and you're doing your uh, thesis on that. So um, do we, is enforcement the key? So you, you talked about, you know, reducing the demand for it. That, mm -hmm. Okay, that's one aspect of it. But can we deal with it on that, dealing with the uh, criminal side of things? And, you know, what what's the easiest way to stop to stop this illegal trade of, of everything as opposed to just shutting down hunting? But if we want to take the illegal aspect out of it, how do we do that? Yeah. Easy question, right? Well, it's not the job of, you know, an African game ranger to take on transnational organized criminal organizations. Right. You know, that that's a much higher level, you know, involving, you know, police forces, the intelligence community, etc. You know, but where, where game rangers, you know, play a really valuable role is in stopping the the supply, right? And how do you do that? And, and, and you do that by getting the community on side mm -hmm. so that they're informing you when they see poachers in the area, right? Because they have a financial stake in making sure that those elephants aren't poached. Um, you know, the game rangers are really almost the, the liaisons in, mm -hmm. in many ways between, you know, the, the operators and, and the people who are, are living with these animals on a day-to-day -day basis. And, you know, they're the ones who can get people really on side to stop poaching. Um, now, of course, they have to be trained, you know, to do that, but that takes resources. And, you know, if you stop hunting, you're going to take away some of those resources. Where a lot of these resources coming from is, you know, do organizations like DSC and other conservation organizations provide funding for it? Or is that private funding, government funding? Where's the pre predominant? Oh, it's a combination. And, and DSC has been, you know, great at supporting game rangers in parts of Africa. Um, you know, my friend Mark's uh, unit uh, that I mentioned in Mozambique, they get tremendous support from DSC. The Luwiri Conservancy in Mozambique um, gets support from DSC. Where I was in the Lower Zambezi Valley in September, there's a unit there called the Dande Anti-Poaching Unit, or DAPU. And um, they're very sophisticated, also supported by, by DSC. So some of it is coming from the hunting NGOs. The non-hunting NGOs you know, also invest considerable resources. I don't want to leave them out of this conversation. Organizations like the Wildlife Conservation Society, AKA the Bronx Zoo, um, are investing massive amounts of resources into supporting game rangers. So is the World Wildlife Fund. And neither of those organizations is anti-hunting. They're just not a hunting-based based organization. And then of course there is government funds that come into it. Um, the United States in particular um, provides a lot of funding for, for anti-poaching work in Africa. So you talked about some of these success stories, your friend Mark in Mozambique, Dapu. Um, are they seeing significant differences? Are they seeing increased in populations, decrease in poaching oh, through yeah. their efforts? It's it's pretty significant. Yeah, I mean, if you look at, you know, Mark's place in Mozambique, elephants have come back, 
Well, why? Because, you know, they had the breathing room to do that because the, the anti-poaching unit is securing that perimeter, getting the community on side. You know, if poachers do come into the area, they'll get a report and they can field a rapid reaction force either on motorcycles or with a helicopter to, to interdict. Um, in the lower Zambezi Valley with Dapu, I mean, they've seen elephant poaching decline to, you know, what I would call incidental levels. I mean, you're always going to have some poaching. Mm -hmm. you know, you're never going to get everyone. Mm -hmm. The question is, what's the level? Right. And when they took over that con concession and when DAPU launched, poaching was out of control. Now it happens from time to time. And, and that's really the best that we can hope for. And, it, you know, elephants will do okay, you know, under those conditions because humans have always hunted elephants. Mm. Um, you know, there's always been some offtake. Right. What's the waterbed effect um, when you take and you lock down these, you know, Mozambique's doing a great job and these other areas, but then, you know, Kenya, who no longer has, uh, you know, any hunting. So does it, does it move, is, it, is there transference or is there actually a decrease overall in, in poaching? Yeah, you'll, you'll definitely see, you know, poachers move around. Right. Um, I shouldn't say the poachers move around, the networks move around. Right. The poacher, poacher's not the bad guy. Right. And I know that's a controversial thing to say. Your average poacher is somebody who's economically struggling, just wants to, you know, get some money to help their family. And they're recruited by these larger criminal organizations who say, okay, if you go out there, you know, and shoot this animal and bring back the tusks or bring back the horn, I'll pay you this money. Um, so, you know, whenever there's a, um, whenever it becomes too difficult you know, to, to, to succeed in doing that. Yeah, the networks will move around. Because again, this is transnational organized crime. Mm -hmm. You know, they're, they're not just working in one place. They're working across entire landscapes. So when we look at, um, at like a sort of at the landscape level, at the poacher level, for instance, the individual that's out there doing the dirty work as opposed mm -hmm. to the organized crime aspect of it, um, do a lot of them happen in local communities? So will they be the local, somebody locally will go out and, you know, poach an animal? Or, they, or do they tend to be um, a bit more nuanced than that and they'll, you know, travel around and, and they kind of, like it's a living that some people are doing and they're just finding work where they can find it? It can be both. Right. It really depends. It right. can, but it can be both. I mean, sometimes it's somebody from the local community, um, but sometimes it's somebody from another country. Right. You know, who is brought in for that specific purpose. And that's where getting the local community on side is so critical because they're the ones who are going to notice you're not from here. Right. Right. Why are you here? Yeah. Are you um, driving around at night with your lights on and there's gun sounds coming? Yeah. Or even you. stopping at the petrol station. Right. You know, um, and they're going to report that back to the ranger unit. Hey, we saw some strangers because, you know, you're not talking about places that are well traveled. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, these these hunting areas in particular, um, the national parks are a little different, but the hunting areas in particular are, are very, very remote. Mm -hmm. You know, when I was in, in the lower Zambezi in, in September, they were all staring at me, right. which made me uncomfortable. And I asked why. And they said, well, they've never seen a white woman before. Oh, wow. They've yeah. seen white men. Right. But they've never, you know, so you're talking about places that are, you know, they're not untouched by any stretch, but they're, they're not heavily visited. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, <clears throat> with regards to um, the poachers and, and the wardens out there, the rangers, is that a really dangerous job? Is there, I, I get, I'm guessing, organized crime? People die. People yeah. get killed over this often. So, you know, is that, uh, is it a prestigious job? I know you're specifically studying the, 
the Rangers themselves. Yeah. Is it people something people are aspiring to do, or is it something that's you know it's bloody dangerous and they're not too keen on it? How does that work? Yeah, it can be a very prestigious job. Okay. You know, in, in many cases, and it's also a very dangerous job. Right. Um, you know, we estimate about 150 game rangers die in the line of line of duty every year. Wow. In and Africa. And so. yeah, and, and and that's not just you know dying during a contact with poachers where they get shot. Right. They're out there with the hippos, the crocodiles, the elephants. Things happen, mm-hmm. you know, in, in the bush. It's not a safe place. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's a high-risk job at that. And one thing we try to do at the Game Rangers Association of Africa is mitigate that risk. So, you know, one of our core programs is, is we provide them life insurance. Right. So that, you know, if something unfortunate does happen, their families are at least taken care of. We also provide disability insurance. They get injured on the job. You know, they're, 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 they're cared for. Um, but it can be a very, very dangerous job. And, you know, one thing, you know, I can, I can share it out to highlight that is one of our members, you know, some time ago was a very, um, he had a tremendous amount of integrity. And, and the criminal networks were trying to corrupt him. Mm. And, you know, he would not take their money. And so then they resorted to threats. And he did not respond to their threats. And they went into his house and they assassinated him in front of his family. Wow. Wow. That's, that's crazy. Yeah. That is so, so scary. Um, so your study is particularly about the Rangers themselves. So maybe dive a little bit into what you're looking at specifically. I think you talked about, you know, the, like being the nice guy, like, you know, befriending the community versus, you know, riding around with, you know, a show of force and, and mm-hmm. being not approachable. Is that part of it? Is, is it beyond that? I'd like to understand a little bit more about your study. Yeah. So looking at how do communities per- perceive armed okay. rangers, you know, right. in particular. Um, also, you know, looking to develop a typology of ranger units. In, in academia, there's this idea called militarized conservation. And it's discussed in the literature as if it's a singular thing. And you know, having worked with, with the military in the past, I know there's a huge gradient of military action. And to, you know, to say something's militarized, well, what does that mean? You know, to what degree are we talking about? Because military is doing community engagement as well. You know, they also drop nuclear weapons. Right. And there's a lot of space in between those two things. So coming up with a typology of ranger units to assess the degree of militarization um, between them. Then, of course, there's the legal question you know, that, that I mentioned. Mm-hmm. How do the, the laws of war apply to, to armed, armed ranger units? Um, and then also, uh, you know, part of one of my chapters is going to be looking at what contribution is the hunting industry in Africa making to fielding game ranger units because we don't know how many men we don't know how many helicopters we don't know how many vehicles we have no quantification whatsoever of of the investment that the hunting community is is making in in anti-poaching we know it's significant you Mm -hmm. know anecdotally um but my hope is that we can put some numbers behind this so that decision makers will have a better idea of of the role that the hunting industry plays in in stopping poaching I guess there's that direct translation. DSC cuts a check to this uh, ranger unit, and it's like, okay, there's a $50,000 allocation. That's easy. Yeah. But now, you know, this outfitter, you know, had 
two million dollars in sales in the U.S. or North America or outside, you know, Africa, and then how much of that went to a ranger unit that maybe he paid for himself, yeah. or how much? So that's where it's a get, it gets a bit more. It's it's not as easy to. So that's something you're, you're hoping to calculate through yeah, your thesis to calculate, and because you know, are we talking about two hundred and fifty men, or are we talking about two thousand right. or fifteen thousand? Um, and then how does that compare to you know what the national ranger forces are? Right. You know, of the management authorities like the Zimbabwe and Parks and Wildlife Management Authority. So the ranger unit itself, like the rangers, that's an industry, uh, like clearly. So if oh, yeah. we're talking. Hundreds, like 150 die every year. So we're talking thousands. We're not yeah. talking like a couple hundred. Uh, do you have any idea of, of what those numbers are throughout Africa? The rangers are we, you know, and I know. So this is early days. That's this what you're is early days. Study. Yeah. yeah, I mean, uh, I'm about a year and a half into my my research, and I'm just starting to collect data. Right. Because um, you know, you spend that first year figuring out what you want to do, and then reading the literature that's already been written. Right. And then you go out and you collect your data. So it actually seems like your thesis is this is really interesting, but it seems like it's this is a huge undertaking. It, like, and so with the PhD, is it like obviously it's to a higher level and and there's a lot more than going to a master's per se, but is it also broader? Or is it more focused? Because this seems like there's a lot of content uh, to to try and collate all of that in in one study. Yeah, so it's not going to be one study. Okay, it's yeah. going to be multiple studies on, right. on on these different topics. Right. Yeah, very cool. Okay, let's talk a little bit about the industry itself. So we talked about the ranger industry, and uh -huh. uh, that's probably not the right terminology. Profession. But profession, there we go. But if we look at, like, the organized crime aspect of it, any idea what kind of numbers we deal with? And I'm sh I know there's been studies done on this, but are we talking, you know, several million, billions of dollars? Does anyone really know, like, the illegal trade of wildlife of what it what kind of numbers we we deal with? It's the third largest base. illicit trade in the world. Is that right, eh? After people and weapons. Wow, that's incredible. So, like, roughly, do, you, do what, what have you heard as a number? Like, it's obviously billions. If there, that's the yeah, case. there's there's no good numbers. I mean, right. it's a black market, so it's hard to to you know um, to quantify. Right. But you know, what, one thing I would stress is when we talk about the illegal wildlife trade, it's not just rhino horn and elephants. Oh, that was my next question. It's yeah. reptiles. It's birds. It's you know pangolin scales. It's it's a very broad trade. Right. And you know, one thing that we have to be very conscious of is it's also a very dangerous trade because right. animals carry diseases, and oftentimes those diseases, like you know, like Ebola, um, can kill people. Now, thankfully, Ebola is not airborne. You know, you, you have to you have to work hard to catch it. But one day, there's going to be that disease that an animal is carrying that is airborne and that is easily transmissible and that is deadly to people. And it's going to be on a lemur or a civet that's being smuggled somewhere. And a lot of people are going to come into contact with it along that that rat line. And then those people are going to come into contact with people. And then we have our next pandemic on our hands. Mm -hmm. Yeah, interesting. And I guess, too, the interesting thing is you talked about the illegal trade, and it's not exclusively rhinos or elephants. There's stuff going on in North America, too, bears, gallbladders. Yep. And I'm sure there's a whole bunch of other things that I don't even think about. But uh, it's not we're not immune to it here either. Yeah. So, yeah. No, and it always frustrates me, you know, when I see poaching cases here in the U.S. And I kind of, I guess it kind of gets back to that, that hypocrisy. Um, you know, oftentimes you'll hear, you know, people often more towards the animal rights side of things. They're like, yeah. well, just kill the poachers. Right. Well, they would never say that about somebody here. 
Yeah. Right. And I'm not saying that they should. I don't think that they should. Yeah. But there is this sort of different perception because, um, as you're saying, you know, we have poaching here, and, and I would, you know, make the, I would, I, I, I believe, you know, we could actually um, have harsher penalties for involvement in poaching because, you know, I look at some of these cases and I see like, well, their hunting privileges were suspended for three years. Mm-hmm. Well, why aren't their hunting privileges just suspended? Mm-hmm. You know, like if it wasn't accidental, if it was intentional, if they were involved in a criminal organization and it was commercial, you know, it wasn't just somebody who maybe was hungry and had to shoot a deer out of season or something. Why would you ever let them hunt again legally? Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. It, it, to me, that doesn't make sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah. On a global scale. So let's talk a little bit about, you know, you talked about the organized crime aspect. And I know that um, you have done some work involved with IUCN and SULI. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit about what those two organizations are. I would butcher it if I tried to explain it. So you being involved, you can talk a little bit more about it. And then, you know, what can we do on a sort of a global scale and with these global um, uh, organizations to, and, and what is being done to, to try and stop this? Yeah. Well, the IUCN is the International Union for Conservation of Nature. And it was founded in the early 20th century in, in Switzerland. And it's the largest network of conservation experts in the world. So we're not an advocacy organization, but we are an advisory organization. You know, an example of what the IUCN does is there's an international treaty called the Convention on International Trade in Endangered Species, aka CITES. And CITES regulates the, tra- the legal trade in wildlife. And every couple years, the, the parties to this treaty, which include the United States and, and Canada, meet to discuss, well, how should different species be regulated you know, for the purposes of trade? We publish a booklet with you know, advice on you know, whether something should be more restricted, less restricted, not restricted at all. And that's, that advice is drawn from people who are actually experts in those species. You know, it is like the preeminent hippopotamus experts will make a recommendation about hippopotamus or whale or whatever songbird. Um, so that's the type of work we do. Now, the SULI is the Sustainable Use and Livelihoods Specialist Group. I'm a member of the SULI. And you know, we look at issues you know, around how are people using wildlife, including through, through hunting, be it you know, the trophy hunting that you know, is... is um, you know, kind of characteristic of the, of the African um, model, you know, or the type of hunting that we have in North America where people, you know, are, are more doing it on a subsistence basis. Not that we don't have trophy hunting, but, you know, the majority of hunters are, are just looking to put meat in the freezer and if they get some nice horns on the wall, that's a bonus. Um, you know, we, we study, you know, the human dimensions more around that type of use, but also the, the ecological dimensions as well. How is use impacting, you know, a particular species? So something like the illegal trade of ivory, for example, or, you know, rhino horn, uh, obviously countries have taken certain perspectives on that. Does IUCN and SULI take a position on it? Do they have any input on that? And is there a role for them in sort of trying to manage this illegal aspect of it? Yeah, well, we don't have a role in managing the illegal aspect of it. We're, we're not a law enforcement or organization. Um, you know, we do support the sustainable use uh, of wildlife. Um, how that's to be carried out, you know, that, that's, 
that, that's really for governments to decide. You know, we don't take political and policy positions on, on things. What, what we can do is advise decision makers of the potential consequences of their actions. Right. So you would never say, you know, if you guys ban the, uh, you know, the harvesting of elephant, you know, this is this trade's going to go away or um, that's not it's more of a, a policy and you guys wouldn't take a position that or, well, Suli or IUCN wouldn't take a position like that. Yeah, I mean, like what we'll tell you is if, you know, if you ban trophy imports, here's probably what's going to happen to the animals that you think you're saving. Right. Um, but we're not going to tell you you should do this or you shouldn't do that. Right. We're just going to tell you the consequences of your actions. Right. So when we look at conservation in Africa and uh, sort of uh, the current state of affairs and some of the countries that are successful in managing wildlife, some of those that have failed, um, where do you see us going from here? Where do we see... Um, are there things in your mind? Do we uh, improve our support for hunting and conservation programs? Do we increase enforcement? And I know it's early days th for your thesis, yeah. so uh, you know I'm not going to ask you to even, uh, but just on a sort of a holistic level. So what are the things that you see from your involvement in Africa that we can do to support healthy ecosystems and wildlife in their, in their countries? Yeah. Well, I mean, one thing that is sort of in the forefront of my mind when I think about Africa is there's this global initiative called 30 by 30, right. which is this effort to conserve 30% of the planet's lands and waters by the year 2030. And the way that countries are going about this is by conserving 30% of their own countries. And a lot of the African hunting countries are either already there or almost there. Mm. And so what I think, you know, North America could learn from Africa is like, well, why is that? And it's because they have these sustainable use lands where people can also operate a business mm. and make money off of conservation, right? I mean, hunting is a conservation-dependent business. Mm -hmm. If you don't have conservation, your business is going to, to go under. So, you know, with the North American model of wildlife conservation in mind, you know, do we want to potentially look at you know, some of the, the African experience and figure out how we might apply it here so that we can have more conserved landscapes and that they're less vulnerable to development. Um, you know, I, I think in terms of enforcement, uh, that's always a question of political will, mm -hmm. you know, whether it's ivory or crack cocaine, right? right. You know, how, how big of a problem does society and, um, and, and, and the policymakers see this as being uh, to contribute law enforcement resources to it. You know, rather than increase enforcement, I think the, the most powerful thing that could be done is to focus a little bit more on the well-being of rangers around the world, mm -hmm. whether they're in Africa, Europe, you know, here in the United States, and appreciating that these people have a very difficult, stressful, and dangerous job and, and need um, much more support that, than they're getting, whether it's something as simple like as life insurance, you know, which we at the Game Rangers Association provide to, to, you know, making mental health not such a terrible thing to discuss because, you know, a lot of rangers have PTSD mm -hmm. and it'd be great if they felt comfortable talking about the trauma that they've been through, whether it's being shot at or, you know, coming upon a horrible poaching incident or, you know, what have you. Um, so they have a stronger wherewithal you know, to, to do the job that we're asking them to do. Hmm. Very interesting. 
All right, Catherine. So, you know, there's so many different issues that we've touched on today. And, um, and I know that you got a busy schedule today, so I'm going to be respectful of your time. But you talked a little bit about the North American management model and, and the, the work that Shane Mahoney's done on that. And, you know, kind of uh, tweaked something for me, you know, talked about 30 by 30 and some of the successes we've seen in Africa. And, you know, I see the North American model sort of at times certainly being questioned, certainly by the anti-hunting community mm-hmm. um, and anyone that's kind of against consumptive use of wildlife. Um, do we have it right? And I've heard Shane say that it's, you know, this isn't gospel, but the seven tenants are tried and true. They've worked really well. It's been very successful. Are we, do we stay the course? And, and what do you see the future of like just even in North America here for wildlife management? Yeah. Well, I mean, I would agree with Shane. You know, I, I would not be so bold as to disagree with him about <laughs> anything on the North American model. And, you know, when I think of the North American model, to, to me, it's, it's reflective. Mm. This is where we've come from. This is what we've done. This is what we've built so far. There's nothing in the North American model that, sa- that says we can't keep building mm. and, and that we can't adjust things, that we can't introduce new things. Um, and I think, you know, in an era of, you know, climate change and, you know, mass extinction and, and some of the challenges, you know, that we're facing, which are very different than the challenges that were faced by Theodore Roosevelt and George Bird Grinnell and, and Alda Leopold, you know, we have to be a little bit flexible and a little bit adaptable. I think, you know, one thing that's going to be really important getting across to the public and decision makers particularly with regard to the issue of hunting, is this is not an either or. Mm. It's a both and, Mm -hmm. right? So we've got a model based on hunting and it's been very successful, you know, up to this point. What might be complementary, you know, to hunting that could, you know, increase, you know, as Shane puts it, opportunity for all, Mm -hmm. you know, because not everyone wants to pick up a shotgun and and shoot a duck. Mm -hmm. You know, that's, that's just the reality. Nor do we want that either. Nor do we want yeah. that, you know. Um, we just want them to accept that some can and it should be all right. Exactly. Yeah. So how do we build a truly inclusive conservation system that doesn't jeopardize the gains that we've made by throwing the baby out with the bathwater and, you know, kicking all the hunters off of fishing game councils and, you know, some of the more, you know, extreme proposals that I've seen people, you know, bring up, Um I think that's going to be like a very ripe and rich area for exploration mm-hmm. in the years to come. And I, and I know the Wildlife Society, um, who I'm not speaking for, um, though I'm the chair-elect of the International Wildlife Management Working Group. And thank you for that. Um, what a great org. Yeah, it's, it's, a Wildlife Society is a fantastic organization. You know, they do a periodic review mm-hmm. of, of, of the North American model. And I think these are the types of questions they're probably going to be wrestling with, you know, because we do have a changing society right. and we have a changing planet. Yeah. So how do we take, you know, this model from the 20th, 20th century and and make it a 21st century vehicle that can can give everyone what they want, you know, from from a healthy planet? So I'm all for being progressive and, and being adaptive and looking at new and better ways to do things. The one thing that I struggle with is quite often you know, one of the core tenets of the wildlife management model for North America is science-based wildlife management. And that certainly in British Columbia and Canada is sort of being questioned all the time. It's like, no, we should base it on social values, on social license, and that should be the the driving factor, almost disregarding the science aspect of it. Now, that's probably to an extreme, but 
in your opinion, do we have to shift and be more social? Do we have to be more cognizant and more inclusive? Um, it's easy for us as hunters to say, well, there's this many animals there and it can sustain this or we should do that and we can see increase in populations. Do we need to be considering the social license? Is it okay to kill grizzly bears um, because we want to or, or is it only okay when we need to? Uh, you know, there's so many, and that's the one thing I struggle with. I'd love to hear your perspective on it, Catherine. And I know that's yeah. a podcast in itself. but <laughs> Yeah, it is. Um, you know, the way I look at it is, is we need a we need the public to better understand what science is. Right. You know, most of the public and a lot of policymakers think that there's this thing called science and it's sitting there on a shelf. Right. And when we have a question, you know, we walk over and we take the science off the shelf and we open it up and see what the science says. And that's not what science is. Mm -hmm. You know, science is a method of inquiry and it's constantly evolving and it's constantly changing as people make new discoveries and things become more nuanced and we, we, we gain a deeper understanding of this, this universe that you know, we exist in. And so you know, do we need to take social license into consideration more? I think that we've always taken social license into consideration. I'm glad to hear that, yeah, I, I feel that too, so you keep know, going, yeah. But society's changing. Mm -hmm. And I think what's, what's important is, is we should never get away from relying on science to inform our decisions. I think that we, we need to be honest about ourselves. What happens when the science conflicts with what we want? Right. What happens when the science tells us that, you know, if you do this, then this thing that is really bad is going to happen. Mm -hmm. And we, we really want to do that, but the cost might outweigh the benefit. And that's the conversation, you know, we really need to be having. And, and it comes back to, you know, the African, you know, question. Um, yeah, I, I, I get it. You know, people aren't comfortable with the hunting of elephants and lions and leopards and, you know, these species that they rightfully see as majestic and, and beautiful. You know, but, but what do we know is that if you don't do that, you're going to lose all of them mm -hmm. instead of just, you know, losing a handful of them. There's no easy answers to a lot of these questions. Conservation is probably one of the most complex disciplines in, in our world. And sometimes we just have to swallow things that we don't like. Mm -hmm. And that's for both the non-hunters and the hunters. Yeah, sometimes it doesn't work in our favor. Sometimes does it, it doesn't work in our favor. I mean, yeah. we might be jeopardizing our own you know, sport by something that we really, really want, but it's just not thinking long-term enough um, to ensure that, you know, what we have persists. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, I got so many more questions and I, I, I know you got to get going here, but, uh, I want to thank you for your time and, you know, you've, you've just kind of, uh, just touched on so many of these things and we, you know, there's 17 more podcasts <laughs> we could do on this. So I'd love to have you back. Yeah, um, before back. we do, um, before I let you go, any th closing thoughts about your thesis or anything we need to, to touch on? Um, I guess the one thing that stood out that we, you kind of touched a little bit on it and I noticed it here at the convention and I've been to the banquets Friday and Saturday, Thursday and Friday now. And I'm not sure if you touched on it, but, uh, it, they talked about this disconnect from the rural lifestyle. Mm -hmm. And we talked about these, the diminishing, uh, the, the increase in social values and people more concerned about, uh, you know, the rights of animals and, um, and not so much about the science and the things. And, and yeah. it was neat to see DSC talking about that because I haven't really heard that too much. Um, you know, 
I've heard it from other people, but from an organizational perspective, they're actively talking about this disconnect with the rural mm -hmm. uh, aspect. And, you know, you grow up on a farm or in a rural community, you're connected to wildlife. You see it, you see the consequences of too many animals and of one species and what happens, disease or predation or whatever the case may be. Yeah. And, uh, and that's a huge issue, I think, as well. And it was really cool to see that they were talking about here that here during the main show. I thought that was super cool. No, I agree. I mean, the social contract that used to exist between city and country has been broken here mm -hmm. in North America. Um, you know, I, I always used to, you know, sit back because, you know, it, given our recent politics, you've got people saying, well, those city people should go out to Kansas or North Dakota and see how people are living. And I totally agree. Yeah. I would also say that the people in Kansas and North Dakota should go to New York City yeah. and see how those people are living. We need a greater dialogue, you know, between city and country. Mm -hmm. um, it's, if, if we don't, it's not just going to tear us apart politically. It's going to tear us apart ecologically, mm -hmm. you know, because we just won't have the understanding that we need to, to get the work done, the conservation work done that we need to get done. Now, how do we restore that social contract? How do we restore that understanding? Personally, I don't have any good answers to that. That's right. not something I've had the luxury of time to spend a lot of time thinking about. But one thing that I think, you know, could help do it is, is the food system. Mm. It's the most obvious thing. And, you know, I live in an urban area when I'm here in, in North America. I live in the Washington, D.C. area. Right. Um, I hunt. Nobody around me hunts. Right. I'm probably the only gun owner on the block. But I bring people over for wild game dinners. And... I've seen their understanding of things change, right? So for those of us who are still abiding by that social contract between city and country, you know, we can play a key role in helping our neighbors understand, you know, how the world actually works and that we're not in this alone. Mm -hmm. In fact, we're all in it together. And, and if we're going to have a healthy, livable planet, we have to start approaching it that way. And we have to start approaching ourselves as neighbors, whether we live in a high rise or on a farm. Um, we're all in this together and, and, and we better start pulling together or else all of us are going to lose everything that we care about. Mm. I don't think we can say anything better than that to end this podcast. So thank you for, for those comments. And uh, yeah, just appreciate all you're doing. And uh, I look forward to, to touching base again on all these these important issues. And, and I really look forward to um I don't know. So your thesis, when you complete your PhD, is that something that I could read and actually understand or would you yes. have to? Okay, cool. One, one thing I've always endeavored to do, um, and I'm doing it even more so now that I'm in a, a proper academic environment. You know, we, we talked about science earlier. Big challenge with science is a lot of it's not readable, mm. you know, mm -hmm. not, not by the average person. Mm -hmm. And so there's a movement, you know, within the academy now, which I'm proud to be a part of, to make scientific papers accessible to, to the layperson. Mm. So, yes, I'll, I'll share a copy with you once it's done. Wonderful. Thank you. So anyone that's interested in your work, um, you know, previous work or current work, is there anywhere they can go to sort of do a bit more research on what you're we talked about today yeah um you know i would encourage people to visit uh gamerangersofafrica.org um that that's our website for our, our, our game ranger unit um and then of course you can visit wild crew um what well, it's wildcrew.co.uk okay. um that's my my lab over at the university of oxford wonderful well, thanks for taking the time today and look forward to hearing more from you in the near future thank you i appreciate the opportunity